Hey, everybody. My name is Domingo Serrano, and welcome to the Fourth Quarter Podcast with Roger Blackmore. Last time we left you, uh, we were talking about Roger and how his heart developed, and he was all about uh, being passionate about helping uh, the hurting. Uh, so without further ado, let's jump into the next part, our next lesson. What's up, Roger? Hey, thanks, Domingo. Yeah, here we go again. Um, yeah, so what I, the whole concept here, lessons from late in the fourth quarter, is piecing together some things I've learned in on life's journey, recognizing it's um, 70 years of life almost, 50 years of ministry almost, and 50 years of marriage passed in December. So I'm breaking this down into some of those lessons I've learned. So the first lesson was live for your passion. So spent time there talking about the three passions that I've developed really within me on this journey. That is, I'm passionate about my faith, I'm passionate about my family, and I'm passionate about helping those that are hurting. Now, because a lot of this material is part of a book that I'm in the process of writing, um, what really happened is is that... Um, passionate about helping those that are hurting, just kept going on and on and on and on and on. And so actually I split it up. And so what I've done now is the the intro was in our last episode where I gave the background as to some factors in my earlier life that really drew my attention to those who need extra help in life and how they should be our focus. And what I want to do now is we'll, we'll call this lesson number two, which is look to lift up others. There, there's a quote from the great theologian Will Smith where Will Smith says this, if you're not making someone else's life better, then you're wasting your time. I like that. If you're not making someone else's life better, you're wasting your time. I've often heard casual conversations about what Bible character people would like to be. And the answers are pretty predictable. And of course, they veer towards the more spectacular figures in the scriptures. There's Moses telling Pharaoh, let my people go. That's a popular go-to. Then you've got the scene immortalized by Charlton Heston in the Ten Commandments, which dates me, I know, because 95% of the world of today have no idea what I'm talking about. But anyway, you missed it. So where he's, uh, he's Moses and he's parting the Red Sea. That, that's one a lot of people would like to be in on. Or Elijah, Peter, Paul, Daniel, Joshua, Nehemiah. They, they all get an honorable mention, and understandably so. My personal hero, however, is none of these. It's John the Baptist. On the face of it, he was as flaky as they come. And that really appeals to me as a child of the 60s with my own flakiness to deal with. Uh, and those of a certain age will have fond memories of that, the era of flower power, of the beautiful people, when norms were disregarded, conventional behavior was abandoned, and thousands set off on the well-worn hippie trail to Kathmandu. So while most of us are our own brand of, cra- brand of crazy, John the Baptist was definitely in a league of his own. I guess that's why the nonconformist in me so easily identifies with him. He lived out in the desert, wore wore weird clothes, and had the strangest diet, bugs and honey. Now, 
I like solitude at times too, and I'm known for a very individual taste when it comes to clothing and footwear. But I do love steaks, cheesecake, and a bunch of other culinary delights, delights that my hero John apparently passed up. So we definitely differ there. John was born six months before Jesus, and his mission was to announce the coming of the Savior. And he certainly didn't pull any punches. Hey, Matthew's Gospel puts it this way. His message was simple and austere like the desert surroundings. Change your life. God's kingdom is here. Now, however unconventional, he was effective. Crowds flocked out from Jerusalem, the surrounding area, to hear him, to be baptized. Even the religious leaders were curious, but, but he didn't go out of his way to welcome them. Hey, here's Matthew's account of it. When John realized that a lot of Pharisees and Sadducees, religious leaders, were showing up for a baptismal experience because it was becoming the popular thing to do, he exploded. Brood of snakes, what do you think you're doing, slithering down here to the river? Do you think a little water on your snakeskins is going to make any difference? It's your life that must change, not your skin. He was certainly a strange one. A brave one, too. But John never made himself the center of things. He was always pointing forward to the one who would come soon. Here's what he said. I'm baptizing you here in the river, turning your old life in for a kingdom life. But the real action comes next. The main character in this drama, compared to, compared to him, I'm a mere stagehand, will ignite the kingdom life within you, a fire within you, the Holy Spirit within you, changing you from the inside out. And sure enough, one day Jesus arrived at the River Jordan and asked John to baptize him. Though he was initially reluctant, thinking the role should be reversed and Jesus should be baptizing him, John the Baptist did as he was directed. And as Jesus came up out of the water, the gospel narrative changes. Jesus now takes center stage and John sinks into the background. Something that the offbeat preacher knew was coming. He must become greater, I must become less. Following his baptism, the final part of Jesus' preparation for the launch of his public ministry was that he spent 40 days alone in the desert, being tempted by the devil. That test completed and with flying colors, Jesus returned to Nazareth, the town where he had grown up, and went into the synagogue. There he was handed the scroll with one of the day's set readings. And as he read the words written by Isaiah over 600 years earlier, it became clear that the person reading the passage was the very one about whom the prophet had been writing. What he read is very significant. As these are the first words spoken by Jesus as he launched his public ministry and essentially introduced himself to the world that was waiting for its Messiah. They're in Luke's Gospel, chapter 4. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Clearly enough for everyone to understand, that day Jesus announced, I'm here and here's what I'm about. Top of that list, the very first thing that Jesus ever stated to be his purpose, the first recorded words of Jesus as an adult starting his divine ministry in earnest were, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he had anoint, has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. What had Jesus come to do? Firstly and foremostly, to bring good news to the poor. Now, after all that, let's, let's just fast forward to the 21st century and ask ourselves the question, so what should Christ's followers have as their major focus? What should the Christian church prioritize? Because it's a given that his values must be our values. And if that's the case, we need to realize that we are in this world for the same reason the Son of God came to this world, to preach good news to the poor. Inside the four walls of the church building and moving out from there, we need to be looking to lift others. While I was pastoring in Scotland back in the early 1980s, I brought together a number of pastors from the area and we invited a powerful evangelist to come and spend a couple of days conducting special services in Aberdeen. Reinhard Bonnke was a remarkable preacher who'd seen thousands of well-documented healings in his mass crusades across Africa and in other continents. He used what was billed as the world's biggest tent. Hundreds of thousands of people came to put their faith in Christ as he moved from country to country throughout the vast continent, declaring, Africa shall be saved. He was with us for just two nights, drawing huge crowds. And we put on a conference for church leaders in a local hotel on the day between those two evening events. Among other things, I was taking care of Reinhard Bonnke while he was with us and got to spend quite a bit of time with him during his brief sortie into God's own country, Scotland. I was expecting to hear some mind-boggling stories from his Africa crusades over dinner or when I was driving him around but was surprised to discover that the man who was almost intimidating on a stage as a preacher was quiet and private away from the public arena. Conversation was difficult at times. In fact, he seemed to prefer silence. We didn't say much on the short ride from his hotel to Aberdeen Airport the morning that he was leaving. That wasn't a huge problem because, number one, it was very early in the morning, and number two, I'm not good at small talk anyway. We arrived in plenty of time, and so I parked the car and went inside with him to ensure everything went smoothly with his check-in. Standing online at the British Airways counter, I was slightly behind him over his right shoulder. 
Suddenly, out of the blue, Reinhard Bonnke turned, looked me right in the eye with a piercing gaze, and said, The good news is always for the poor, Roger. Never forget that. Then he turned around, checked in, we said goodbye, and he headed for his gate. That comment seemed to come totally out of left field, but of course it wasn't. It touched a soft spot where God had already put his finger much earlier in my life. It reminded me of my mother's stories of working in the city mission, of my sister who was marginalized by so many, and of my savior who was way more focused on the down and outs than the high and mighty. Hey, back to John the Baptist for a few minutes. As Jesus' public ministry began to really get traction, John ticked off one too many people, and he ended up in jail. Sitting there alone in very basic conditions, he apparently began to reflect on what was happening and not happening with Jesus. The prayer throughout Israel for generations had been that their Messiah would come, the Savior. Much of what was expected of the Messiah was military and political. He would overthrow the ruling power of the day and establish his own everlasting kingdom. From the bits of news that were being carried to John in jail, it was clear that none of that had happened yet with Jesus. He was helping beggars, healing hurting people, and a bunch of other apparently incidental things while the Roman Empire still occupied the Jewish people's country and John the Baptist himself was in a prison cell. In the mind of Jesus' cousin, the time was way past due for the Messiah to do his stuff. So John sent a couple of his followers to stir the pot. Their question was about as blunt as we might expect from a man who was never known to mince his words. They're in Luke's Gospel, chapter 7. Are you the one who's to come? Or should we expect someone else? Now, there's no reason for us to doubt in our minds that John knew that Jesus was the Savior. But he was frustrated at not seeing the kind of things from Jesus that he and the rest of Israel were looking for. The message was less of a question and more of a statement, like, for goodness sake, get on with it. The reply might well have taken John and his followers by surprise because Jesus basically said, I'm doing exactly what the Messiah should be doing. And here's what it is. Jesus said, Go back and report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. That was what Jesus offered as the proof that he was who he said he was. He helped hurting people. And following up on his initial declaration in the synagogue in Nazareth that day, he was making good on his promise to proclaim good news to the poor. Jesus made a total commitment to the poor from the outset of his ministry. And in light of that, I'm at a total loss to know how so many of us got it so wrong for so long.
but we did. And one of the reasons, I think, is that much of my early years in ministry, we were self-absorbed and inward-looking as a church, doing little to carry the love of Jesus to those who needed him. When we did, we did it our way and on our terms, giving little thought to how to communicate with the unchurched in a way that was meaningful to them. But then I came to New York, a lot of things changed. I'll talk to you about that next time. But one of the lessons I've learned is we need to lift up others. Hey, welcome back. And if this is your first time maybe listening uh, to the fourth quarter, with Roger, we finish up with almost like a little Q and A. Uh, some questions that pop in my mind as Roger does the reading. And uh, Roger, just to jump right into it, uh, often uh, your vision what became very clear to you the kind of church you wanted was a church full of the unchurched. Is that fair? Oh yeah. <laughs> so how? Because uh, often you talk about with leadership having a clear idea, right? We could talk about general ideas, but you had a passion for something very specific. Uh, what makes an unchurched person compared to a churched person? would you say? Well, <laughs> I was going to say something. Don't get in trouble. No, I was going to say something wrong there, but so I won't do that. I'll, I'll pause. I'll pause and think before I speak. Yeah. Um, no, I, I think here, here was the thing. After years of pastoring, yeah. um, I mean, we, we launched this church. We are in our 22nd year now. Um, so, but that means that I've been, you know, at the time we launched this church, I'd been pastoring for something like 28 years mm -hmm. already. Wow. And in 28 years of pastoring, it was, you know, a lot of the mentality that I had and, and was common around me in my own defense was <laughs> that there's a them and us thing. Mm. There's us who are churched people who are Christ followers. Mm -hmm. And out there, there are these evil people who are unchurched wow. and not interested. Yeah. And um, I, I came to a place where I started to realize um, that the way we were doing church and yeah. what we were doing, number one, wasn't vaguely attractive <laughs> or relevant to the person out there. Yeah. And, and, and number two, in some ways, was weird. <laughs> um, you know, I, I've got a varied background and, yeah. and no disrespect to any particular church community, but, but um, as a recovering Pentecostal, um, some of the stuff we loved doing and thought was real, real fun and you know we got real blessed by. If the average person walked in, they'd say this is crazy. But we didn't know it was crazy. We thought it was good, and we wondered why they didn't come. And I came to realize why they didn't come. It was another world. Yeah. And and then I, I realized that most people's problem is not that that, that faith is irrelevant; is that church is irrelevant. Mm, okay. So. Wow. Going back to what I was talking about a few minutes ago, where Jesus' mission was for those who were outside, the marginalized, the lowest, the least. Yeah. Um, and, and what I really wanted to do was to really say, hey, here's what we need to be doing as a church. Mm -hmm. We need to go recognizing that poverty is not just about how much money you've got, but people who, who are, you know, pe people who have no hope, mm -hmm. uh, people, people who, who, who are... Uh, plagued with all kinds of um, habits that yeah. bind them up and, and recognizing these are the people, you know, these people need Jesus. Yeah. 
And so what I want to do is, this is a terrible phrase, but I'm going to say it. And if you want to email me about it, my email is domingo at genesisli.com. All right? That sounds but, confusing. But what, 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 I'm, what I'm going to say is, is, is that um, we were hopelessly irrelevant. Mm. And uh, say it, Raj. The, <laughs> the people who needed us, yeah. um, almost we looked down on. Wow. And it, there had to be a totally different mindset where these are the people I want. Mm. And, 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 and I look around our church now and I see hundreds of people who came in our doors broken and messed up. And I see them in the process of finding hope and finding healing. Yeah. And I think this is what Jesus said he came to do. Amen. This is what I signed up for. Beautiful. But for almost 30 years of pastoring, it was not my focus. Mm. So now I'm passionate about yeah. every day God gives me, this is what we're about. We need to reach that. Beautiful. Um, and just to jump on that, what is it uh, about a quote-unquote someone who's unchurched, who's not coming from church culture, uh, to you does it almost seem like they're willing to show that they're hurting more than necessarily a church person? They'll wear that out? Well, you, you know, the traditional thing, you know, I'm going back historically and not talking about anybody that I've known in particular, but I have known some, uh, is, you know, traditional church is, is mask time. Mm. It's like, yeah. let's get out the car, put on my mask, walk across the parking lot, walk in the door. Yeah. Hello, God bless you. How's, how are things? Wonderful. You know, and uh, yeah. that's cool. But you know what? Number one, you're not being honest with yourself yeah. when you're that way. Number two, you're not encouraging anybody else because yeah. anybody who feels their life is less than perfect, thinks, what's the matter with me? Everybody else here uh, knows Jesus and has got their act together. So, uh, you know, church life is messy. Yeah. It's going to be messy. I mean, look at some of the people Jesus hung out with and yeah. then everybody criticized him for it. And it was, you know, there were messed up people that he loved to be with. Yeah. And I think the thing about, you know, unchurched folks is if we create an environment where they don't, you know, where we're not pretending to be anything, yeah. where they don't feel intimidated and can be themselves. And to be honest, you know, in that environment, I as the pastor can be myself too. Amen. And wow. if we can yeah. all just be us and recognize we're on a journey together yeah. and we're meant to be helping each other, but we need to, yeah. There was almost a feeling, so, you know, years ago in church settings, like we don't want those people in here. Yeah. You know, oh, I can't. You know, we can't have him in here, yeah. and 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 you know, you know, with, with the the building we've got here, we've got these huge barn doors that lead into the worship center. What I say about them is they're big enough and wide enough, so whoever you are yeah. and whatever you're carrying, there's room for you in here. Yeah. That's who Jesus came for. When he said, "Whosoever will may come," Amen. he came for the whosoever, not the elite. Hey, tell him. Okay, that's fantastic, Roger. I think. Uh... There's no better place to leave off than that. I'm going to get this right this time, but we have a bunch of ways as a church that we're interacting with you. A lot of good video stuff. Uh, GenesisLI.com is our uh, official church website where you can find our videos, you can find podcasts, our Sunday sermon podcasts. On top of that, uh, Facebook has been one of the, if not our best medium where we're getting a lot of our stuff out and you can really interact with us through there. So if you Google, uh, Google, forgive me, if you search in the Facebook bar, Genesis Church LI, Genesis Church, more often than not will come up. We're the green G logo. You'll see us pop up right there and again it's a great way roger's really accessible you can search roger blackmore in there and all good stuff roger anything to send us off with 
No, just uh, I'm going to develop this lesson number two in our, our, our next episode, right? But it's so important, you know, live to lift up others. Man. That's it. That's it. Thanks so much for listening. Bye.